Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Kate LeBeau about her recent book, Unfinished Utopia, Nova Huta, Stalinism, and Polish Society, 1949-1956, to published by Cornell University Press. The book received the 2014 Barbara Yelovich Book Prize from the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. I found this to be a fascinating book that looks at the intersections and contradictions between ideology and practice, between identities and social change, all at play in the building of Poland's first socialist city. I'm looking forward to talking with Kate today about Unfinished Utopia. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Kate. Thank you. And as a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Eastern Europe. Sure. Um, Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to participate in the New Books um, program. It's a a program I enjoy a lot, and I actually used to listen to podcasts of New Books in History when I was commuting between Edinburgh and Newcastle, and I would religiously listen to the the podcasts on my my iPad uh, on the way to and fro. Um, I, I... became involved in studying East Central Europe in a kind of odd roundabout way. Um, After I had had no um, experience with the region um, before starting graduate school, really. Uh, I studied American history in college. And then I spent a year and a half in South Africa um, which was then in the waning days of apartheid in 1992 and a little bit in 1993. Um, and what absolutely fascinated me um, in South Africa was, um, first of all, the contrast between uh, modernity and backwardness, to put it very, very bluntly. Um, the unevenness of the, the sort of total penetration of the media um, and people in all walks of life and in all parts of the country being very um, plugged in to, to this global um, information exchange. And at the same time, the, the underdevelopment of um, of daily life, of material life in, say, rural areas where people might not have electricity or hot and cold running water. Um, another thing that fascinated me was the, the politicization of the society, particularly of young people, um, because the, of the legacies of the anti-apartheid movement. And um, when I came back to the U.S. and I contemplated doing Ph.D., in history, I was thinking about working on Southern Africa, but I kind of kept my mind kept on going back to what I knew about from family stories and um, just my general reading uh, about East Central Europe at the beginning of the 20th century, the first few decades of the 20th century. And so ultimately, that became my entree and into studying East Central Europe. Hmm. That's an interesting route to take um, via South Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sure also that has um, helped um, helped how you think about studying East, East Central Europe probably in interesting ways, the experience in South Africa. Yeah, I think it did. Great. So what drew you specifically to write a study uh, of the construction of Nova Huta? Well, that too was uh, maybe a, a little bit of a, a geographic kind of analogy or a leap because 
I grew up in New York City in the 1970s and the 1980s. And New York, of course, is a city that's been subject to many, many waves of urban, urban planning. And living in New York makes you very much aware of how man-made features of the urban landscape really have an impact on everyday life and on the nature of community and social relationships. Um, so uh, besides this, I guess there was a certain family influence because, well, my grandparents were New Deal liberals and my grandmother was a lifelong volunteer at an organization called the Citizens Housing and Planning Council. And when I was a kid, I sometimes used to go over there to their offices in the West 40s and help out in the library, um, which was her remit. And then later when I was in college, actually, I was at Yale and I wrote a paper about urban renewal in the 1960s in New Haven. And I used the resources in that library. So I was kind of immersed in this. So this, this planning, um, these planning traditions of post-war America from the optimism of the New Deal to the sort of disastrous hubris of the 1960s. And when I began studying Polish history, um, this background made Nobohuta a kind of logical choice of a topic to study because it was a chance really to explore how many of the same experienced as a, an urban dweller um, could have played out in very radically different historical circumstances. And in the title of your book, you call Novahuta an unfinished utopia. And, um, and that idea of planning communities um, is certainly um, the, the major focus of the book and then the consequences of these attempts to plan a community. So I'd like you to start with the second word, actually, utopia. Why did Poland's post-war communist regime decide to build these steelworks and this town? What was their vision? Well, officially, Nova Huta was developed in imitation of new towns in the Soviet Union, like Magnitogorsk or Komsomolsk which was Novohuta's sister city, in fact, in the USSR. Um, these socialist cities, as they were called, were, were kind of like the must-have accessory for every aspiring people's democracy. Um, they were very much a rhetorical symbol of belonging to the Soviet camp after World War II. Um, functionally, if we go beyond the level of rhetoric, uh, like the other new towns, uh, across the, the Soviet bloc, Nova Huta was intended to serve several different purposes. One of these was um, as an aspect of the economic transformation that um, the Stalinist uh, system strove for in Poland. So um, Nova Huta was an integral part of the first six-year plan uh, in post-war Poland that was modeled on Stalin's five-year plan of the 1930s. And this was intended to radically increase industrial production across the board, but particularly in basic industries. Um, so the city of Novakuta, which literally means new steelworks, was built in tandem with a massive um, new steel production um, facility and the city was intended to provide housing and services for the workforce of this new facility. So economic transformation was one function. Um, social transformation was the other intended function. Um, this gets back to actually um, the interwar period in Poland, because long before World War II, Polish economists had seen the problem of rural underemployment as one of the top priorities for, for um, the newly independent Polish uh, state that was created after Versailles. And um, this underemployment was most acute in the southeast, the part of Poland that had formerly been um, Galicia, Galicia. So Nova Huta was intended to absorb surplus rural labor in that southeastern region. Um, first, uh, by creating construction jobs, 
But then um, by transforming the the builders of the town through extensive on-site training into workers in the in the steel plant. So, in other words, these unskilled rural laborers would be turned into skilled industrial workers, the urban proletariat that the system depended upon. Um, simultaneously, by participating in what the propaganda of the day dubbed building socialism in Nova Huta, um, people's outlooks would also be transformed. Their mentalities would be transformed um, with the support of appropriate political mobilization and ideological training um, in Nova Huta. The new inhabitants of the town were meant to be molded into um, model Soviet citizen, uh, Soviet style citizens. And uh, additionally, um, they would be brought up to a higher cultural level through an extensive network of um, continuing education, leisure time facilities, and institutions of higher culture. Um, and so the original plan for the city included extensive um, leisure and cultural facilities like libraries, theaters, cinemas, a park of culture and repose, a network of common rooms and red corners, and all of this would contribute to the, the creation of the so-called new man in Nova Huta. Mm-hmm. And you referred to the interwar period and this vision of modernizing Poland and of taking um, the rural population and, and bringing them up to a higher standard of culture wasn't just a communist vision. And so that um, drew in people who were perhaps more nationally minded Poles into this project. So can you tell us about those architects and city planners and who were not necessarily seeing this as a communist vision, but as a vision for Poland? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that I argue in the book is that there was widespread support for the idea of building Nova Huta um, on the part of many people who uh, had little love for the party for for the Stalin worldview. And um, this can be traced to a few different sources. One is uh, the tradition of etatist planning in Poland that is very much an interwar tradition of seeking solutions for the country's economic and military problems through uh, top-down investment and planning by the state. Um, so in terms of industry, uh, there was um, a plan that was interrupted by the outbreak of World War II to um, radically increase um, Polish industrial production, particularly uh, of goods that were needed for, for military um, purposes in the so-called central industrial region, which like Nova Huta later, was um, located in underdeveloped areas of the country, especially the southeast. Um, And part of this, uh, these plans for the central industrial region also involved the creation of new towns, the largest of which was also a steel town called Stalova Vola. In terms of urban development, in interwar Poland, uh, there were also um, some other notable examples of new towns, the most important of which is Gdynia, the Baltic port city, which was built entirely from scratch on the site of a former fishing village. And it was um, a very strong focal point for, for, for patriotic um, uh, sentiment and, and mobilization of, of, um, of sort of the idea of the, a common productive effort by Poles to, to enter the new era um, by building a beautiful modern new city. And so there are very strong echoes of this later in Nova Huta. So actually, um, the first plans for a new post-World War II steelworks that would increase Polish steel production um, were developed in secret wartime planning workshops um, underground during World War II. So 
after the war, Nova Huta was seen by many patriotic Poles as being very much in line with earlier attempts to strengthen Poland economically and militarily. And the fact of building Nova Huta was not in and of itself controversial. What was controversial was where Nova Huta was built. And this was almost certainly something that was decided by the Soviets and perhaps even by Stalin himself, although we'll probably never know, because Nova Huta's location, um, just a stone's throw from the medieval city center of Krakow, Poland's arguably most beautiful and one of its historically most um, sort of sacred national sites, was extremely controversial. Um, so it was... There were there were many reasons for patriotically minded Poles to support Nova Huta. There were other reasons for them to oppose it. Mm-hmm. And despite the intentionality of constructing Nova Huta, this this planned socialist city, you actually describe it as an unplanned city. Why is that? Well, the more that I learned about how Nova Huta was actually built on a day-to-day basis, uh, the more I realized that actual plans, blueprints um, for the city were flouted as much as they were followed, or, or they simply didn't exist. To give you just a few examples, first of all, the comprehensive city plan for Nova Huta wasn't developed and approved until several years after building actually began. So the earliest settlements are built according to a very different architectural style. Um, And you can see this today if you walk about in Nova Huta's older districts, that the the two oldest districts um, resemble um, several districts in Warsaw that were built right after the war, which were actually based on pre-World War II blueprints so much for the Stalinist city. Um, Besides this, there was just a tremendous amount of improvisation um, on a daily basis in in construction. Either the blueprints were not available. For example, um, the steelworks was built by, um, according to Soviet blueprints that were sent from the Soviet Union, and they always came late. So, uh, while the the um, construction officials were were trying to keep up to their their timeline their deadlines, they often had to make things up as they went along, or the plans were not well suited to local conditions. So many roads, for example, had to be torn up because um, they had been built on clay soil, and the damage as a result of the unstable um, underlayer had not been anticipated. Uh, In addition to this, many of the elements that had been foreseen in the city plan were never built. And this included some of the the most important um, uh, and representative um, structures in the plan, like the city hall, the large central theater, the park that I mentioned earlier, and many decorative and interior elements that were abandoned because of cost cutting or because after 1953, when Stalin died, it seems that officials in Warsaw more or less lost interest in Nova Huta. Hmm. So what's interesting about this for me is um, that it it tacks against the conventional view that we have of a totalitarian dictatorship. Um, This, for example, is the idea articulated by someone like Karl Popper that um, what distinguishes totalitarianism is the overriding commitment to what he calls the blueprint, the plan, the ideological script. Everything must be forced to conform to that and anything that doesn't conform must be eliminated. And this, he argues, is the reason that um, utopian uh, systems or utopian thought inevitably leads to violence. But what 
I learned about the daily lived experience of planning in Nova Huta did not conform to that idea that the blueprint is dominant and all else must fit in, rather. Uh, and this seems to be confirmed by other scholars, for example, Vladimir Paperni, who writes about what he calls culture two in the Stalinist Soviet Union, suggests that um, uh, unfinished, unstarted, or altered architectural plans are entirely typical of, of that uh, of that reality. So we need to give the, the liberal model of someone like Popper a rethink. Hmm. Yeah. And so then that gets back to this unfinished utopia of uh, Novo Huta that both the, the vision and yet the realities on the ground um, and the, the sometimes conflicts between those two things, <laughs> but they did indeed build a steelworks and build a city so tell us who came to Nova Huta, this new socialist city being built from scratch. Mm -hmm. Well, um, above all, it was the target population of the planners, which were overwhelmingly young rural Poles, um, predominantly without much education, perhaps a few years of uh, primary school, um, if that. Many of them had um, experienced the disruptions of World War II, either having served as forced laborers at some stage in Germany or having lost family members or been resettled in various other kinds of um, uh, common wartime experiences for that generation. Um, what I found especially interesting in, in the sources in which these newcomers discussed their reasons for coming to Nova Huta, of course, they talked about wanting to have a better life. But seemingly this idea of a better life, leaving the countryside and, and going to the city, um, was not viewed just in material terms, but also in, in terms of um, freedom, autonomy, uh, and excitement. This, these kinds of, um, this, this drive for a new kind of subjectivity is evident in a number of different aspects of life in Novohuta. For example, we see that uh, many women who settled in Novohuta were in a way looking to escape patriarchal control uh, in traditional village society. So, for example, it became a haven for um, pregnant unmarried women who faced a terrible stigma um, back in their villages or for widows who could be financially independent in Novohuta. Um, and overall, um, many, many of the young people who went to the new town talked about just being bored to tears by life in the village and craving, you know, the excitement and anonymity of city life. So this is also a larger story about modernity um, that transcends merely the, the, the history of socialism. Um, and so I think it's important to place that history into the larger, into the larger context. Um, a smaller number of, of the new inhabitants of Nova Huta were educated professionals or skilled workers. They were usually attracted by um, the possibility of getting an apartment because there was such a housing shortage in Poland after the war. Um, but there's also an interesting and again, a, ra a rather small but significant um, percentage of, of newcomers were uh, escaping political persecution. So, for example, I had an acquaintance whose father moved to Nova Huta when, so he was a skilled worker, uh, and he had been accused of sabotaging the machine that he worked on in his former factory because the machine broke and and the, and the secret police were after him. And Novo Huto, because it was a new town, because people were from all over, didn't know one another, and because there was a tremendous um, fluidity in terms of 
who who was there of the, the population turnover, um, it was a place he could go to to escape the secret police. Yeah, so Nomahuta drew a lot of different people, but you look in detail at these young men, particularly coming from rural um, villages, who came there as construction workers, the, the, the lower skill positions, and how they both exemplified the new socialist man as hero workers, but also how they exemplified these fears of the uncultured masses with their so-called hooliganistic behavior. Mm-hmm. So first I'd like for you to explain for us the role of labor competitions in Stalinism and the particular role that these young men um, played in pushing the boundaries of productivity. Okay. Well, um, labor competitions had, or labor competition had several different faces in Stalinist Poland. On the one hand, there's its highly rhetorical face, um, these very publicized um, feats by model workers like Novohutas Piotr Zhansky, and of course anyone who's seen Man of Marble by Andrzej Vida is very familiar with this story of uh, you know, a young person who is elevated to the status effectively of a celebrity because he allegedly achieves these superhuman um, productive feats as a construction worker, or in the case of Ojansky, as a bricklayer. Um, at the same time, on a more sort of mundane level, um, labor competition also in, in at the time referred to the system of organizing production and, and wages, it was essentially a form of piecework where uh, workers were paid um, according to what the foreman had recorded as the percent. hard to even explain in English because it doesn't make any sense in Polish either, but the percentage of norm that they had achieved in a certain um, unit of work time. And, um, as you can imagine, this this led to a lot of dissatisfaction on the part of workers, and it was a, applied very uh, erratically, and and there were extensive abuses as well of the system. So um, this was a very consistent and and very important um, source of um, labor um, dispute and conflict in Novohuta. Um, but but the irony or or the interesting thing is that despite all of this, um, despite the fact that everybody knew that the achievements of someone like Ozhansky were completely trumped up, um, there was considerable enthusiasm for labor competition as well among many workers, um, and the sources consistently demonstrate this. Uh, and the way I understand this is uh, that um, many people simply bought into the idea, as the sort of rhetoric of the time had it, that in building Novohuta, they were building for themselves, their families, and their fatherland. So there was the draw and excitement of participating in a collective endeavor. Um, and in, in a, the sort of adventure of building a new town from scratch um, had its romance and allure and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, and this is, this is where the enthusiasm is expressed. Hmm. And yet these same young men who were so dedicated to production during their work hours were then, um, according to uh, descriptions um, at, written at the time, roaming the streets, drinking, harassing women, and generally behaving in an uncouth manner when they weren't on the job. Mm-hmm. So what do responses to these young workers um, outside of their production capacities tell us about post-war Poland and also about post-war generational relationships? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I argue that... Um, the responses to misbehavior by Novohuta's young workers um, should be understood as a moral panic. Uh, it's not that there were not cases of drunkenness and brawling and harassment, 
but um, the degree to which it was uh, represented in the media was uh, excessive. It was an exaggerated response. And this tells us quite a lot, actually, about contemporary anxieties among Polish authorities and opinion makers. Um, and these anxieties, I would say, were um, prompted by the very real changes that were occurring in Polish society after World War II. And Nova Huta was a part of these transformations and was also a, high, a very highly visible symbol of those changes. Um, Scholars like Jan Gross had talked about the social revolution that um, was brought about by World War II uh, in Poland and throughout East Central Europe. This involved the replacement of traditional elites, um, or at least the um, supplementation of traditional elites by new groups. In Poland, for example, the urban population was disproportionately ravaged by World War II. And so there was a massive process of urbanization across the country um, where cities were being increasingly resettled by formerly rural Poles. And this fundamentally destabilized traditional relationship between urban and rural um, and the traditional hierarchy between urban and rural in Poland, where city dwellers had very much looked down upon peasants as being uncouth and boorish and incapable of refined uh, sentiments or behavior. Um, and so Nobuhuta becomes a kind of lightning rod, for example, for these anxieties on the part of traditional urban poles vis-a-vis the new urbanites. Um, another area of social transformation um, in this era is gender, uh, because the Stalinist program explicitly aimed to productivize women in the terminology of the day by placing them in traditionally male professions. Um, this led to conflict in the workplace between male and female workers, um, but it also led to rumors in all parts of Poland where women were entering uh, non-traditionally female professions about depraved sexual, sexual morals among women workers, as my colleague Malgorzata Fidelis has shown in her book about um, Stalinism and gender in Poland. So anytime you have a transgression of boundaries and blurring of categories, um, it can give rise to tremendous social anxieties. And here is another example of that. Um, but there's a third, a third piece to this, which again, transcends um, the history of post-World War II Eastern Europe. It's really a transatlantic, transnational um, phenomenon, and that is the rise of popular culture. Young people in Nova Huta listened to jazz. They danced the jitterbug. They dressed in the way that they imagined Americans would dress. And just as in West Germany, for example, um, this rise of popular culture and transatlantic styles threatened the role of traditional cultural arbiters and provoked um, sometimes very visceral reaction on the parts of intellectuals and um, students from the educated classes who in Western Germany would go around beating up the, the, the working class um, youth who attended jazz concerts, for example. So it's in this context also that I understand what you could really describe as a backlash by Polish, some members of the Polish intelligentsia against what they see as um, a lack of culture in Nova Huta. And perhaps the best example of this is the poet Adam Vasik, who writes a scathing and, and tremendously um, controversial poem uh, 
about Nova Huta, in which he refers to the, the people living there, the workers, in an incredibly derogatory way. He describes them as industrial slag, a byproduct of, you know, waste, in effect, the, the byproduct of uh, wasted human detritus of the Stalinist industrialization effort. And so what I would suggest is this, this reflects these larger anxieties about social changes, and in particular on the part of the in- intelligentsia, that it's being pushed aside by new forces that are um, global in scope. And I'd like to come back to those critiques about Nova Huda in a moment, but first I want to um, pick up on your uh, discussion of women. And in particular, I found really interesting that your chapter on women was also your chapter on Roma, who were um, brought in as workers at Nova Huta. So explain for us the parallels between these two groups' participation in the Stalinist project of building Nova Huta. Well, the parallels, in a way, are, are artificial ones. They were imposed by the sort of ideological um, grid of Stalinism itself. But in each case... I think, as I mentioned earlier, for women, the purpose was to, quote unquote, productivize a group that had formerly been marginal to the national economy, just as surplus rural labor was to be productivized through the construction of Nova Huta. Um, so there was a, a very publicized um, attempt to attract women into um, skilled industrial jobs in in steelworks and provide new economic opportunities also for Roma, um, who, at least the the group that was largely um, attracted to Nova Huta, were otherwise um, engaged in traditional trades like tinkering, um, which didn't have a future in a shiny, industrialized um, Stalinist. So, of course, the, the, the logic behind the Stalinist policy was fairly simplistic. The idea was that if you um, gave entry to the paid workforce for these groups, that they, they would no longer uh, occupy subordinate status in society. And, of course, it was much more complicated than this. Uh, one of the things that I document in the chapter is sort of ongoing pushback by male workers against having women um, occupying skilled positions uh, in the workplace. And similarly, there was um, a lot of discrimination towards Roma inhabitants of Nova Huta, such as um, children in school being forced to sit on a separate um, bench from the other children and uh, workers in the steelworks being given the absolute smelliest and dirtiest of jobs. Nonetheless, what is um, also interesting is that uh, in the the recollections of um, quite a few women and Roma who took part in this process, This period, the Stalinist period up to about 1953, was um, favorably remembered as a time where they had more opportunities than later on. And indeed, uh, the result of the pushback from male workers uh, was very often that um, with the... um, the thaw and the retreat from the Stalinist program, uh, many of the women in better paid, more skilled industrial jobs, both in Nova Huta as elsewhere in Poland, were forced to step down from those positions, often in the name of um, health and safety regulations. Um, but effectively what it meant is that they got then worse paid and sometimes physically more demanding jobs. And there's a kind of parallel process with Roma, whereby uh, when authorities became disillusioned with 
the policy they had pursued of settling Roma in Nova Huta, thinking that this would uh, result in a total elimination of Roma's separate status in post-society, they uh, retreated to a far more um, coercive uh, policy towards Roma, uh, which police, so, so instead of um, trying to attract Roma to settle in a place like Nova Huta with the carrot, uh, it was more the stick that was used with the introduction of policing measures to, to um, prevent Roma from um, living on the road and uh, force them to settle in uh, regular communities. You've already uh, referred to some of the critiques of Nova Huta, and these became particularly strong after Stalin's death and Khrushchev's speech in this period of the so-called thaw. So in addition to concerns about the, um, the uncultured population and this, this um, urban urbanization and, and the dangers of that, what else went wrong with the first socialist city? What were the other concerns? Probably the largest concern was the housing program. Um, the, the, dynamics of the Stalinist industrialization project were that uh, the production targets for a facility like Novo Vuitton were continuously being increased. Um, and therefore, there was a continual demand for more and more labor. Meanwhile, the housing construction program simply couldn't keep up with these constant um, expansions of the workforce. And there were, in addition, uh, many problems, as I alluded to earlier, with construction that slowed things down and uh, inbuilt inefficiencies in, in the state socialist economy meant that there was a continuous shortage of goods like housing. Um, so this was um, a tremendous source of dissatisfaction, both among the populace in Nova Huta, but it also became a terrible public relations disaster for the regime. And in particular, what caught the public's eye was the inability of young married couples to um, be alle- to to find uh, or to be um, allocated uh, permanent housing. So that meant that you had married couples living in sex-segregated workers' hostels. And as these things often go, um, the strict uh, rules about women and men occupying separate quarters did not always um, get followed. So there was a huge scandal um, about young people, first of all, starting out in life in the great socialist city and not being able to live together. But it also fed into the moral panic I discussed earlier. And one of the most um, important pieces of publicity to come out at this time was the first major um, piece of journalism by Richard Kapuscinski, who investigated the problem of uh, young couples in Nova Huta and the degradation of sexual morals that went along with their not being able to have their own apartments. And uh, the aftermath of this article's publication is very interesting. Initially, it led to the entire editorial staff of the journal in which he published it being fired. But uh, and, and Kapuscinski himself went into hiding in Nova Huta in a worker's hostel. <laughs> he was afraid he was going to be arrested. But um, there was enough support from internal voices for reform within the party for a, um, a commission to be established that came to Nova Huta to investigate the circumstances that Kapuscinski had described. And Kapuscinski was completely vindicated, rehabilitated, became the hero of the hour, and uh, heads rolled in uh, the various relevant agencies and, and party um, bodies within Nova Huta, um, bringing about uh, a change in, in personnel. But unfortunately, this did not prevent um, 
the uh, final denouement in 1956 when workers in Nova Huta fed up with all these ongoing issues, rose up along with workers across the country to demand um, a change in personnel and basically a change in direction of politics in Warsaw. And you, even though your study ends in 1956 and this kind of pivotal moment in post-war Poland, Nova Huta continued to be an important site of worker opposition to the regime and then of the Solidarity Union. So can you give us a few highlights of Nova Huta in the 1970s and the 1980s? Sure, but I should probably start in 1960. Okay. Because this was um, the year of the so-called Battle for the Cross or Struggle for the Cross, which was one of the largest... um, street protests in Poland uh, up until the Solidarity era. It was uh, occasion. it was sort of, um, it was occasioned by the um, gradual pullback of the Gomułka regime from its promised liberalization in 1956. One of the things that happened um, following the uprisings of 1956 was that a team of um, citizens from Nova Huta had traveled to Warsaw to meet with Gomułka, the new premier, and to request permission to build a church in Nova Huta. A church was something that the planners had always sort of secretly thought about and made provisional secret plans for, but officially Of course, there was no place for a church in an atheist uh, city. So Gomuka had agreed uh, and a site had been designated as the place where the church would be built. A competition was held, plans were um, chosen, and the construction was meant to proceed. Meanwhile, uh, the Gomuka regime was changing its course in terms of its relationship with the church. And in 1960, one morning, workers appeared at the site where the church was supposed to be built and removed the cross that um, the church's supporters had placed there as as a placeholder, as a marker. The result was two days of um, popular protest, which often turned violent. Some of these same former hooligans were probably out in the crowd throwing bricks and Molotov cocktails at the police and demolishing the party headquarters. And it was it was absolutely a um, it was a riot by the second day that had to be put down by riot police. So that was certainly a highlight. Um, What's interesting about those events is that although the, uh, the focal point of the protests was the idea of building a church in the town, the rhetoric that was used at the time was still very much um, a blend of different value systems. So, for example, many of the protesters called on the right to religious freedom enshrined in the Polish constitution. Others sang, uh, sang socialist songs um, as they were protesting for a church or the Internacional. Um, later, the events would be very much cast as a, uh, in terms of a, a, a narrative about recapturing and recovering national Catholic traditions. But the actual sort of semantic mix in 1960 was was very much more um, uh, varied and and interesting. In the 1970s, um, there's some evidence that workers in Nova Huta participated in some of the um, strikes and upheavals that were uh, occurring elsewhere in the country. But the... Um, police were extremely active in trying to shut down any example of protest because of Novokuta's 
ideological importance as a socialist city. But um, when you look at some of the strike demands that were coming out of Nova Huta at the time, they're, they're very similar to some of the demands being made in 1970 and 1977 on the Baltic coast. Um, in the 1980s, Nova Huta becomes the site of, um, first of all, it has the largest workplace chapter of the Solidarity, Independent Solidarity Labor Union. And then during the martial law era, um, there are massive street protests, very reminiscent of those, uh, the one I mentioned earlier in the 19, in 1960, um, where citizens and uh, riot police are clashing in veritable battles. It turned out that Novohuta's spatial layout was far more conducive to street protests than, for example, neighboring Krakow. Um, and this is one of the great ironies of the, of Stalinist planning, that it provided a perfect backdrop for uh, anti-regime protests in the 1980s. Hmm. In your conclusion, you argue that utopian visions of a new town for the masses were a luxury that Polish communism could not afford. So what were the economic and political costs of Nova Huta, and why were they too high? Well... Ultimately, um, Nova Huta highlighted what the anthropologist Catherine Verdery has identified as one of the fundamental paradoxes of state socialism, which is the conflict or the tension between production and consumption. Um, I mean, to oversimplify a bit, the steelworks represented production. And the city was a form of consumption. The regime used consumption as a way to achieve legitimacy with uh, the populace by, by giving things away, like apartments. Um, it attempted to um, justify the demands uh, that it placed on on citizens in terms of restricted freedoms, restricted movement, uh, less than ideal living conditions, um, and difficult labor or work conditions in many instances as well. Um, but at the same time, the internal logic of the system was to accumulate the means of production. And um, this continually drew resources away from uh, the sphere of consumption. So the fact that cultural services and facilities in Novohuta were continually underfunded, that there was a continual shortage of housing, that, um, that the apartments were not built to the same specifications as originally planned because of the need for cost cutting, uh, were in a way the flip side of the amount of resources that were placed into um, creating this massive productive facility of the steelworks. So that's one aspect of the question. Um, that's the economic costs, although it's related to political costs, because, of course, if you promise people uh, housing and then you don't deliver, you end up with a political cost. But... Um, but political costs here I also understand in terms of the, the, the meaning that Nova Huta had for, for many people personally and collectively, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as, a, as a, an endeavor in which people um, gave their best, uh, showed the best side of humanity, uh, worked together for a goal um, that would benefit many. Um, and that vision uh, took on a life of its own and seemed to 
to be cherished more by the people who built the town than by the authorities who had initially bankrolled it and then later withdrew their sponsorship. And as you um, closed your book, uh, you don't really look very much at what Nova Huta is like today, but can you tell us just briefly, what is the city like today in the in post-communist Poland? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's very interesting. It's constantly changing, you know, the situation in Nova Huta is constantly changing. And my book came out in 2013, and even then, of course, there was a lag because I had completed writing it somewhat earlier. So um, this perhaps is one of the most fascinating things is that the, the, the face of the district is constantly uh, changing. And I can give a few examples of that. But uh, I said district a moment ago, and, and that's perhaps one of the, the most, um, the first things to note is that although Nowohuta was intended originally to be Poland's first socialist city in 1953 when uh, Stalin died and authorities in Warsaw lost their interest in um, putting more resources into this, this massive endeavor, Nowohuta was demoted to a district of Krakow, which is ironic because in the Stalinist period, Krakow had been uh, dubbed a decadent city of the church and of the intelligentsia, and it was Novohuta's role to infuse it with fresh life. But that relationship was reversed, and Novohuta was then put under the administrative um, control of the city of Krakow, and that situation remains until today. Um, that relationship between the old city of Krakow and the new district of Novohuta has been very important. Also, um, both for um, Novohuta's more troubled history, but also for many aspects of its post-communist revival, because although the steelworks uh, was massively reduced following privatization, there are still uh, many employment opportunities in Krakow. And so unemployment in Novohuta is, on the whole, not so severe compared to some other centers of formerly state-owned industry in Poland. It's also attracted um, some sort of boho uh, new, new, new settlers, a new kind of settlers, artists, uh, theater people, young people who appreciate its aura of authenticity, um, the, difference of its landscape to that of its surroundings. So today it is, um, it's a very varied landscape, which contains um, brownfields, rusting and deteriorating former um, parts of the steel plant on the one hand, on the other hand, um, new cultural initiatives, uh, new theaters, new um, parks that have been refitted uh, to, to suggest, uh, to, to um, connect with the, the wetlands of the Vistula escarpment. So the landscape is constantly changing. That's the most I can say. Mm. Well, thank you, Kate, for giving us so much of your time to talk about this book. And I'd like to close by asking you what you're working on now. Sure. I'm working on something completely different. Um, My new project deals primarily with the period before World War II in Poland. And I'm looking at a very interesting and unique um, set of sources that were collected by sociologists through memoir writing competitions between the two world wars. Um, They were interested in collecting memoirs by workers, by peasants, by uh, unemployed people, migrants. And uh, these competitions, which were prize contests, became very, very popular and were also very widely discussed in the media and by um, literary people. And so I'm exploring this phenomenon from a number of different perspectives. Um, The connection with Nova Huta is that 
some of the sources I used um, for for getting at the voices of uh, inhabitants of Nova Huta were memoirs that had been written in memoir writing competitions or written for memoir writing competitions that had been organized by the communist authorities co-opting this interwar institution of, of the memoir contest. That sounds like an intriguing project and hopefully we'll have a chance to interview interview you about that book in the future. But in the meantime, I want to thank you again and thank our listeners for joining us today. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies. 